Support for this podcast comes from you and Yankwich & Associates, since 1997 working to provide expert, responsive service in intellectual property law to biotech, biopharmaceutical, and biochemical companies worldwide. More information at yankwich.com. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I have this problem. When I go to a party or a dinner and I get introduced to people, they'll say, like, hi, I'm Sal, I'm Sarah, I'm Joe, I'm Claire. And I look at them, and I can't remember any of their names. And then, inevitably, I'm sitting next to someone who's like, hi, Sal, hi, Sarah, hi, Joe, hi, Claire. And even after that, even after it's been repeated, I've still got nothing. Memory frequently fails us in these kinds of moments. But it's also good enough. And so most memories, you'll at least remember the gist of what happened. Julia Shaw is the author of The Memory Illusion and a senior lecturer in criminology at London South Bank University. So you'll remember sort of in general that you had a conversation with a person or you talked to someone about memory. Um, you might not remember the details. You might not remember that my name's Julia or that I wrote a book. But you might remember this sort of this general concept. Oh, yeah, I talked about false memories and misremembering. So apparently I shouldn't be concerned. It turns out I've got a lot of other stuff on my mind. I mean, we're so busy taking in what all the other things that are happening when we're meeting someone. I mean, we're, we're eyeing them up. We're trying to see, you know, is this person going to hurt me? Is this person someone I want to get to know? Is this someone I you know, really want to get to know? Um, so there's, there's lots going on in that moment. And it's really easy to not actually even just pay enough attention to the name to be able to put it into even your short-term memory. Shaw focuses on how our memory works. She's looked at what we can remember and what we can't remember. She's convinced research subjects of false memories. And she's investigated more generally why we often overestimate our memories. Shaw says we've got to rethink our reliance on something that is way too fallible. All of our memories change every time we recall a story. And so it's important to understand that sort of Memory is malleable, and people can say things with confidence and with detail and with emotion, even if those things never actually happened, because they feel real to the person recalling them. So how much do you think of the memories that you have about your own life are, are true? <laughs> like, how much do you think you <laughs> misremember the things that have actually happened to you? I like to say that 100% of our memories are essentially false. There's the essentially in there just as a little qualifier, at least. Um, what I mean is that no memory, even if you have a perfect memory, so you're, you're experiencing a situation right now, you're listening to a podcast or you're, you're watching something on TV, you close your eyes or you close your ears, if you will, and you try to remember exactly what you just heard. Right. Now, even in that circumstance, you're going to make mistakes. And that's as good as it's ever going to get. And so what I mean by sort of all our memories are false is that because of perception, because of attention, because of memory, because of how our brains work, you're never taking in all the details and you're almost certainly creatively interpreting both your environment and, and sort of filling in the blanks. You know, in the last election, uh, one of the things that seemed to happen was this discussion of the past and how... You know, some eras of the past were really great, and we want to recreate those eras now. When you hear that kind of rhetoric in the political sphere, does that also fit in with the whole, you know, glorification of the past in our memory? Just the way I might think, like, boy, you know, when I was 10, those were the days. <laughs> Back in the day. Right. Yeah. 
Well, I really hate nostalgia. Like, I, I really don't like the idea of sort of looking. <laughs> Puts you at <laughs> odds with a lot past. of people. Well, but it's it's just, it, it's not useful and it's often incorrect. Um, and often it's riddled with false memories. I mean, if you look back at statistics and look at, I don't know, things like crime, life expectancy, basic things. And you can see that so many things have gotten so much better over time. And yet people look back on their, usually it's their, between the ages of 15 and 25, which is hmm. called the, the reminiscence bump, which is where people over the age of 40 in particular seem to have an increased memory of events that happened at that time. And on top of that, generally remember it as more fondly than it, well, one might argue, may have actually transpired. Is that because they're like becoming adults and those things are like somehow very searing or they're the first time that certain things have happened to them, that kind of thing? Exactly, exactly. It's where you develop as you. So it's sort of your identity forming years. And they're remembered very fondly. And there's, I mean, in psychology in general, there's something called the primacy effect, which is that things that happen first, we often remember better than things that happened later. That's partly going on. But in terms of political decision making, the problem with sort of making a country great again, shall we say, or, or trying to say that we should make a country great again, is that... A, our country is great now, um, and so you're encouraging people to rely on potentially false memories, and that's going to have an impact on your political decision making because you're you're sort of reaching into your past, picking out favorites, and using that to make decisions now. Um, so I think that there's there are huge problems with nostalgia, and I mean it's seen all over the world. I mean Brexit was so, so in the UK the the Britain leaving the EU was also driven by by nostalgia hugely. Hmm. Um, so False memories, nostalgia. I'd say a lot of nostalgia is riddled with false memories, and we need to be careful with hmm. talking about things that way. So let's get into this whole false memory thing a little bit more, because uh, research has shown, you have shown, actually, that you can implant false memories in people's uh, minds without too much trouble. So talk about how you how you do that, since most of us think of ourselves as having a pretty infallible memory. <laughs> yeah, I mean, overconfidence is so common. Uh, we think we're better than most people at most things. We think we're better looking than most people. We think we're better drivers than most people. And we think we have better memories than most people. So, I mean, it's it's sort of the human condition, if you will. What we've shown is that it's really easy to get people to confuse their imagination with what they think happened, with their memory. So we, we go in and intentionally distort people's memories or create memories from nothing. Well, not nothing, because you, you still need a brain. <laughs> and you need pieces of memories that we can get you to weave together in a way that never happened. But essentially what we do is over a number of interview sessions, usually three interview sessions, we get you to repeatedly picture something happening. And we, we come in with insider information. So we contact usually your parents or um, people you trust who have given us information allegedly about your childhood or teenage years and then we launch it back at you and say oh do you remember this this event happening and the first event that we talk about usually is true and so you'll go on for 20 minutes and tell me about an event that actually did happen when you were let's say 14 and then I go on to number two and say well what about this other event where you committed a crime and the police called your parents you were 14 it happened in your hometown and you were with your best friend and I weave in some real details then I say well what about this one and then you go, I don't know what you're talking about. And I say, okay, well, let's, why don't we use, do a memory retrieval exercise to get that memory back? And so research like this shows that if you get people to then engage in sort of imagination exercise where they close their eyes and they picture the event as it could have been, over a number of sort of repeats and given a little bit of time to sink in, 
people come to think that what they're imagine what they're accessing isn't their imagination it's actually their memory especially if someone like me is going mm, good it looks like it's coming back um, and so by the end of it um, in research we generally find that between 15 and 70 percent of people seem to remember emotional things that never happened do you think the criminal justice system is aware of how malleable memories are because still one of the most important things in any trial is the people who like saw the crime happen and who are there and can testify to this is how the person looked and this is what they did and this is where you know what they were driving and and whatever else yes and no so i think that if you talk to judges and lawyers and and even jurors i mean they'll see in especially in a case with multiple witnesses you'll see the same story told in sometimes dramatically different ways within the same trial. So I think that there is an appreciation that obviously people notice different things and also that they might misremember things slightly. But I think there's an underappreciation of how severe these these mistakes can be. And so I think that we are often, as humans, still fooled by, I mean, this is true for the criminal justice system and for pretty much everybody else, we're fooled by things like someone's confidence and the complexity of a memory and the emotionality. And so someone's pointing at someone in a courtroom saying, that's the guy who did it. Mm -hmm. That's that's powerful. And it's even if you know about memory, it's hard to sort of in that moment go, oh, yeah, but that could be wrong. <laughs> um, that and it's it's hard also to balance making sure we listen to victims and making sure we have safe spaces for people to come forward and say, you know, I remember this thing happening. And maybe it's even historical. I remember this thing happening 20 years ago, but I never came out and reported it or whatever. And feeling like they, they will be listened to. So it, it's a tricky situation for the justice system to, on the one hand, fully acknowledge and integrate an understanding of false memories and on the other hand to make sure that we don't just throw out cases because all we have is memories because in i mean especially in sexual abuse cases often all you have are memories you don't have witnesses you don't have other evidence very often and that's really difficult and you know now that the criminal justice system may now know that we are so prone to make mistakes uh, misremember things falsely remember things what do you think that lawyers and judges and police people, what should they do? How should they approach things differently than they do now? For the criminal justice system, the biggest thing we can do is to record, record, record. You want independent evidence as to not just the crime itself, but as to the memory as well. So we shouldn't just be videotaping or audiotaping confessions or final witness statements. From the first contact the police have with anyone involved in a potential investigation, if possible, you want to be recording from that moment on. And that's mostly a safeguard as well for the police. I mean, if you're really good at policing, which a lot of police are, what you can do is you can prove, look, we did everything that we should have done Mm -hmm. and we asked the right questions and this is what we got. And so I think that... And this is something I often tell the, the police or the military when I work with them is, you know, it's safe safeguards for you. This isn't just because it's problematic for the individual on trial, but you don't want your case to get thrown out if you've been working on it for months and months and months or years. Um, and then, you know, a judge says, oh, well, this is inadmissible. <laughs> so recording things is really important. Making sure you understand the basics of memory, because I think right now it's not taught as standard to lawyers or judges or to cops or mm-hmm. to other people involved in the, in the justice process. So we need to get out there a little bit more about not just what to do, but why to do the things you do and how to ask the right questions. 
outside of the criminal justice system, do you see kind of a wild new world ahead when it comes to uh, the research around memory? I know, for example, people have talked about being able to treat PTSD by maybe expunging the memories that give you nightmares and the memories that sort of inhibit your ability to live your life in a normal way because you know they're very traumatic. Yeah, so the the taking away rather than putting in memories, right? Or distorting, changing memories rather than adding totally new ones. Um, Yeah, there's certainly therapeutic applications. I mean, there's there's people in Amsterdam right now who are using essentially heart pressure medication, I believe it is. Um, Not even drugs, drugs, just just medicine (laughs) to increase the malleability, increase the flexibility of memories associated with phobia. So they're having people, you know, play with tarantulas and what they're doing is they're allowing people to build new memories that are positive experiences with things that they fear that they can later access. So, and on the other hand, we've got people who are, as I said, sort of hacking right into brains and maybe cutting out the emotional part. And this is really important, is that it's not... Yeah, I don't think the future of false memory science in terms of treating trauma is to delete entire events. I think that's incredibly difficult because events are really big in the brain, especially Hmm. complex multisensory events. Hmm. You can change them, sure. But the biggest thing you want to do to get rid of a trauma, for example, is to get rid of the emotional component. So you want to cut out the fear. You want to cut out the, you know, the sadness. You want to cut out that piece. And that's something that we're already doing in mice. And I've talked to a neuroscientist in France who says that we're starting to do this in humans as well. Hmm. So in extreme cases, you might be able to, it looks like you are able to, um, go right into the brain and get rid of the piece that's really bad in a memory. And that wow. can actually dramatically increase your quality of life. Take a step back from all this. Um, how do you think this should affect... All of us, now that we all sort of know the issues that memory can have, let's say, how should this affect all of us? I think that we should be cautious, curious, and kind. So you should be cautious as to sort of confidence. So when you're totally sure something happened, still be cautious and go, okay, well, but maybe this didn't happen exactly the way I remember it. And you need to be curious. So think about not just your own memories, but other people's memories. Like, where did this come from? I mean, was there maybe a weird interview process? Did someone suggest to me that this happened? And then I started imagining it. Did I guess? Um, so be curious as to the origins of your memories and be kind to others. So just because someone says something that's demonstrably untrue, don't assume that they're lying because they might just be misremembering. So I think that really appreciating the flexibility of memory is also good for well, our social interactions in our lives, but it's even good for sort of taking charge. So in a way, when you realize that your past is essentially a piece of fiction anyways, it really gives you a different perspective on focusing on the future and focusing on the now and going, okay, well, maybe some of that stuff didn't happen the way I remember, but that's okay because I can control what's happening right now and what's happening next. So it it sort of highlights the role of now. And I think that's quite a beautiful thing. Julia Shaw is author of The Memory Illusion. She's also a senior lecturer and researcher in the Department of Law and Social Sciences at London South Bank University. Julia, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. If you want to tell us about memories that you've gotten wrong or memories that your friends and family just can't agree on, you can email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org, 
Or you can join the conversation about this on Facebook, facebook.com slash Innovation Hub Radio. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. If you were to come across a rare first edition of Shakespeare in a bookstore, it would be 400 years old, kind of falling apart, but you could probably still read it. If you came across a first edition of James Joyce, it'd be about 100 years old, and you could definitely read it. But if I handed you a wax phonograph cylinder that is also about 100 years old, you would have no idea what sort of music or what sort of speech was on it. I've actually come across floppy disks from when I was a kid, and I'm talking about the early floppy disks that you could actually bend in half, and I had no idea how to get any information off them. So I did what you do, and I threw them in the trash. So if you store your writing on a hard drive, or you back up your files in Dropbox, or you save a picture to Facebook, what's going to happen to those things ultimately? Abby Smith-Rumsey is the author of When We Are No More, How Digital Memory is Shaping Our Future. Abby, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. So how much do you worry that people are going to lose Uh, these memories that are really important to them, that they're going to go back in 30 or 40 years looking for baby photos or family photos. And, you know, they took them on their phone or they they burned them to a DVD, and they're just not going to be able to get them back. Well, I do worry that people who are now taking all of their memories and putting them onto hard drives are actually backing them up to something called the cloud, which is nothing they control, let alone own, that they don't understand the risk that they're taking. I do think that it might be just a passing inevitable phase of our introduction to digital technology. I think that family genealogists who collected letters in the past will grow up knowing that they've got to be preserving not just their photos and their discs, but culling them and also making sure that they're secure over the time with backup and so on. But I think it's a pretty steep learning curve in the next 20 years. Well, and also, you know, I think in some ways people think that like photo albums are anachronistic and who needs them anymore. And plus, they can't keep all your photos and stuff. But I mean, I have photos that my grandmother had in the 1920s, you know, and that's a long time ago. And a lot of their technologies, like I don't see cars from the 1920s, but because they were printed out, because they're just pieces of paper, I have them. And you have them in part because people decided that they were important and cherished them and somehow let them pass to you in time. Even better, even if they didn't understand the value, they put them somewhere out of harm's way so that you could discover them 80 years later. I mean, this is one of the problems with our technology is that you can't, like a book or a photo album, put it in the dark and just expect to be able to stumble upon it 80 years later and find it and be able to play it back. You know, when you talked about people putting things in the cloud, what's going to happen to all the stuff that people put in the cloud? It's individuals, companies, you know, people writing novels and put the drafts in the cloud, all sorts of things, email correspondences, love emails that were really important to them, all these things. They're in the cloud. What's going to happen to all that stuff and who's going to take care of it? Well, in all humility, nobody knows what's going to happen to it. I think unless we start demanding that the companies, we consumers, the users of these products like the cloud, demand some accountability from the services that we use to store this, we actually cede a lot of our responsibility and our options for what to do with what is, after all, our own personal information. 
I don't know what's going to happen to this, but I do know that if we start to actively pursue private-public partnerships, say, with the companies that run these clouds and demand services from them, such as the ability to output our memories onto durable, even even disks, mm. that we get to take care of and take copies of, then I think we have a better chance of at least curating our own personal histories. But right now, we don't. Do you think that the Facebooks and the Amazons of the world have backup plans? Because, I mean, companies don't generally last forever. No, they don't. And I think that they have backup plans for as long as they're able to support them and for which there is a market demand. I certainly hope that Department of Defense has a backup plan for its data Mm -hmm. um, because that's not exactly going to be superseded or they're not going to go out of business. But I think that it's not wise for the public to rely on a private company to have long-term preservation goals. It's not their business. That's what libraries and archives do. And I think if there's no partnership or handoff between private companies that have all this data, like Amazon and Facebook, which you mentioned, and these publicly accountable institutions like libraries and archives, then we don't actually know what's going to happen to them, to the data that they have, even though we think of it as our own data, and we'd like to think that we own it. I know you've worked with the Library of Congress in their efforts to preserve this whole new set of technologies. What have you seen that's most worrying to you in terms of us actually being able to preserve the things that matter to us? I mean, there are some sad cases people have told me. I mean, I'm rather skeptical about using these private platforms like Facebook, but I have certainly known people who, for example, have lost a son or a daughter and have tried to get access to that child's Facebook page or actually put a, you know, hired a company for um, a period of time to put their their wedding photos and also and documents online, a kind of wedding site. And, you know, I worry about people not being not thinking that in 50 years, they'll want to hand that stuff to their grandchildren. People just don't have a long term memory when they're at that age. And so they don't make these long term plans. The other side of all this is um, something that you write about. Uh, right before Christmas in 1851, a fire ripped through the Library of Congress and burned uh, more than 35,000 books. So are we in a better position? You know, even though we talked about Shakespeare and those early editions and how great it is that it's on paper and I, we can still read it after 400 years, there's a lot that can happen to paper. And I wonder, are we actually, in some ways, despite our growing pains with digital stuff, moving into a good direction of not having all this flammable stuff all over the place? Well, yes and no. I mean, if we really care that much about fire, we would still be writing cuneiforms on clay tablets because they do really well on fire. You know, they get... (laughs) Um, But in fact, they can keep very little information. Look, I think that digital technologies have just, just begun to uncover the most extraordinary amount of human potential, things that both frighten us and please us. So I don't take any of the losses in the first couple generations of digital technology as anything more than learning curves, Mm -hmm. very steep. Just like I think the abuse of social media nowadays is something that we almost had to learn only by experience, because although people warned us about this, there's no way that we can understand the full power of social media without using it and abusing it to its full extent. You know, there were terrible abuses of the print in the beginning, in the first hundred years, and even more after the invention of printing, uh, of movable type. 
But I think over time, people start to understand what is good and bad behavior. I mean, my violation of your data rights leads you to violate my data rights, my Mm -hmm. data privacy. And eventually, people will rise up and begin to demand some social norms and legal norms about how we behave. And some of that will be demanding that certain things like government records be permanently available to people into the future, as paper records have been. Abby Smith-Remsey is the former director of the Scholarly Communication Institute at the University of Virginia. She's the author of When We Are No More, How Digital Memory is Shaping Our Future. Abby, thank you. Thank you. It was a delight. I'm Kara Miller, and you're listening to Innovation Hub. Here are a couple statements you probably never thought you'd hear, or at least not for a really long time. Type 2 diabetes has been eradicated. We know the gene that controls autism, and we can turn it on and off. Well, both of those statements are true if you're a mouse. Almost every medicine we take is developed using mice. We give them human diseases, and then we work really hard to cure them. And we've cured lots of things in mice. But many, many of those cures don't work on people. So why do we rely so heavily on mice to try to understand humans? Innovation Hub's Caroline Lester has been looking into it. Why did we start using mice? We just kind of fell into it. It all began in the 1900s. Scientists were trying to understand how certain traits get passed down in animals. This was before we knew anything about genes or DNA. So they were experimenting, but to design good experiments, they needed a pool of genetically similar animals. So they turned to something called fancy mice. For hundreds of years, people bred fancy mice as a sort of hobby. You could keep them as pets or make fancy furs from all the different colors. Biologists looked at these mice and saw an opportunity. They were small, cheap, and most importantly, bred to be similar. Since then, the industry has exploded. Now you can shop online for a custom mouse from the comfort of your own scientific bench. If you've ever seen a lab mouse, odds are it came from a place called Jackson Labs in Bar Harbor, Maine. Everywhere up there smells like the ocean, but the entire 43-acre campus of Jack's, which is what the locals call it, smells like mice. This is the B6 OBOB, OB for obesity. Um, This is a one-gene mutation that these mice don't make a hormone called leptin. And leptin is what makes you feel full. So they never, ever feel full. She's on the exact same diet as everybody else. But she will just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger as she gets older. Kristen Koff trained scientists on how to use mice from Jackson Labs, which was actually the first company to make mice for scientific research. There are over a million mice in the building. They live in places called mouse rooms full of thousands of cages stacked on top of one another. Obi is one of Kristen's go-to show animals. That's because leptin was discovered using Jack's mice back in the 90s. Now, it's one of the genes that helps us understand why some people are obese. But Obi isn't the only cool mouse in the cage. It looks like three black, three brown, a yellow, and just a no-haired mouse. Correct. The bald mouse is used to understand immune systems. One of the black ones is used to study certain kinds of breast cancer. These mice are the product of over 100 years of research. They're living organisms made to be manipulated. And whatever your animal rights qualms might be, testing on mice is definitely better than doing risky experiments directly on humans. But how often does medicine that works on mice work on people? 
it's very easy to cure cancer in mice. We do it all the time. But many drugs that have looked really promising in mice haven't worked in humans. That's Dr. David Sinclair. He studies aging in humans at Harvard Medical School. Well, using mice as the main model for human disease uh, means that most drugs that look good in the lab don't work in humans. And so people and companies have lost millions, actually billions of dollars over the years. The translation rates between mice and humans aren't so great. Cancer drugs that work in mice have about an 8% success rate in humans, and one of the only successful tuberculosis drugs has no effect in mice. Why is the success rate so terrible? There are lots of reasons, but here are a few. First, the mice we use are healthy adolescents in the prime of their rodent lives, not usually the kind of people who end up in the hospital. Second, we've gotten so good at making mice, they're genetically identical. Again, a bad approximation of the diverse humans who need medicine. And finally, they're mice. They're not us. But Sinclair is quick to insist that they're still the best we have. In part because there are very established methods for controlling their environment. We understand their physiology. We understand their genome. Uh, and there are methods for, for causing human diseases in mice. So we may be stuck using mice, at least for now. But there's one man who thinks he might have an alternative. I'm Don Ingber. I'm the director of the Wyss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering at Harvard University. My work uh, spans many areas. Uh, most recently, uh, development of human organs on chips as replacements for animal testing. When I first heard about organs on a chip, I got pretty excited by the idea of a lab filled with thousands of tiny lungs. We don't rebuild a lung. We're trying to distill it down to the sort of the simplest design features do you have an uh, organ on a chip in your office? Uh, I, I sure I do. Let's see. This is one. The I'm chip is the size of a gummy bear and contains That's tiny hollow channels that are lined with cells from different organs, like our lungs or our gut. It, it basically looks like we expose them to breathing motions. We can introduce air into lung. So, for example, we have a lung on a chip, and we can introduce cigarette smoke into the airspace while measuring inflammatory molecules in, in the bloodstream being released. Or we could, we could model asthma or COPD, different pulmonary diseases. And so you could do things you can't usually do on a dish. We have one cell type alone. Eventually, we might even be able to test on custom organs linked together and lined with our own cells. Is this what the future of medical testing looks like? Sleek, elegant, and small enough to fit in the palm of your hand? Maybe, but not yet. I think in the near term, we definitely still need to use animal models. For now, Ingber thinks that scientists using mice and places like Jackson Labs are making the best of a tricky situation. What they're doing is trying to improve a model that has limitations to get it better and better. What we're doing is a disruptive approach where it's sort of coming out of nowhere and saying, we need an entirely new way to do this. So why, when we throw billions of dollars into new medicines, don't we have a better way to test them? The answer is complicated, but it boils down to this. Finding a way to replicate human reactions to medicines is hard. And if you want to do it quickly and economically, that's harder still. When you think about the diseases we haven't solved, it's not our ideas that hold us back. It's our tools, our mice, that can be the biggest problem. And until we solve it, modern medicine will continue to be tied to the humble mouse. For Innovation Hub, I'm Caroline Lester. You can see pictures.
pictures of the mice at Jackson Labs on our website, innovationhub.org, including one of their hairless mouse, also known as the nude. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. There's a food that Americans eat 6 million pounds of every hour of every day. 6 million pounds every hour, every day, which is kind of hard to wrap your mind around. Once upon a time, this was a food that was way too expensive for regular people. It's kind of a one percenters food. It was eaten in mansions along the shore in Newport, at luncheons at hotels in New York City. People thought of it as a lady-like food, so it was often served to rich women. But when times changed and the prices dropped and the rest of us got our hands on this food, boy, did we love it. Emmeline Rood has written about the strange story of how chicken took over the American table. She's the author of Tastes Like Chicken, a history of America's favorite bird, and she's also written for Time Magazine and Vice. Emmeline, thanks for your time. Yes, thanks for having me. So at what point in your life did you think, chicken, that is totally a book? (laughs) Um, Well, this project actually started off as my senior thesis in college, but I always liked food. It's always been sort of my thing. And I remember going to a professor's office. This is actually how I start the book. And he, we were just having a conversation about a class I was taking, and he just quips, a chicken is an incredible piece of technology. Just sort of no context, no explanation. He immediately (laughs) moves on to something else. And that kind of sparked a that is a strange idea, and looking into it, yeah. Okay, so tell me what technology is behind chicken. Like, in what way was he right that the chicken is an incredible piece of technology? <laughs> well, what's interesting about the history of the chicken, at least in the United States, the further you go back, the more you realize how much science is in both indebted to this little bird and also how much the bird has been influenced by science. A lot of the major breakthroughs in the past few centuries have been based on chicken experiments. So vaccines. Louis Pasteur discovered vaccines trying to cure foul cholera, which is a devastating chicken disease that was killing all of France's chicken flocks. Also, Charles Darwin, a lot of his evolutionary theories were based on chickens. There's this big mania in the 1850s called hen fever, where people just became obsessed with breeding really fancy chickens. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite hilarious. There's some a lot of documents back in the day that talk about people. people it's like the Beanie Baby bubble. People I know you can never tell what what fads are going to be, and sometimes yeah. apparently they're hens. Yeah, people were paying thousands upon thousands of dollars for fancy chickens, <laughs> and they were breeding incredible birds. Actually, a lot of the the heritage breeds that we talk about today, that a lot of like the slow food movement and farm-to-table advocates right. are really into, they came from this hen fever hmm. in the 1850s. Um, and Darwin saw this and saw the great variation people were producing really quickly with their birds. And that helped cement uh, his ideas on species change. So l- let's go back to why chicken, even sort of beyond the science of it and every stuff, why is chicken such a big deal in the U.S.? So you've written that I think this is a quote, never before in modern history has a food risen so quickly in national eating favor. What happened that chicken became so popular in the U.S.? Like what enabled that? 
So, well, part of it is the, just the technology. We have transformed a very expensive, very seasonal, not frequently eaten commodity into one of the cheapest proteins available, largely through the breeding, through the science, through the intensive farming. And at the same time, we have a huge shift in what we understand healthy eating. Granted, now a lot of people are pushing back against the idea that low-fat diets are good for you. But when this hit in the 1960s and 1970s, there's a huge transition away from what Americans typically ate, which was beef, pork, and a lot of wheat, Mm -hmm. to chicken, which at this point was finally super cheap that people could eat it every day. In 1959, there's a thing that the USDA called the broiler depression. Basically, uh, up until this time, the chicken industry had just been building, building, building. Chickens were getting cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. You have vertical integration. You have all the science. You actually have a breeding program sponsored by the government in 1948 called the Chicken of Tomorrow Contest. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, it's a great name all of a sudden, for a competition, the Chicken yes, of they Tomorrow. Did, and they did produce the, ch- the chicken of today, actually. We're eating that hmm. same chicken now, basically. <laughs> hmm. um, but so you get all this. In the 1950s, chicken is super cheap. It's the cheapest it's never been. They're producing billions of birds a year for the first time, but no one was eating it. There was no cultural incentive for people to want to eat chicken. For a long time, people only ate chicken because it was kind of prestigious. It was like lobster. Right. Chicken right. was expensive. It was for the Sunday suppers, for a fancy meal. And now, all of a sudden, chicken was just sort of like a cheap thing in the grocery store. And it wasn't until you get the cholesterol scare and this whole shift, the U.S. government telling people explicitly to eat less red meat, eat more poultry, that people actually start to eat chicken. Right. So you talked about the chicken of tomorrow. What is the difference between the chicken of yesterday and then the chicken of tomorrow, which now is the chicken we eat, the chicken that was sort of created is like, wow, this is going to be the chicken of the future, which is the, the current chicken we all know yeah. and potentially love. So we, so this chicken is called a commercial broiler, if you want to speak industry terms. It is just a very heavily selected, rapidly growing strain of chicken. A lot of people say that that chickens are, they like to say falsely, that chickens are are genetically modified. No. This is sort of the the miracle of the chicken. It's so easy to breed in specific ways. that This chicken grows so fat, so fast, that if it were a human baby born (laughs) six pounds, within two months, that baby would weigh 660 pounds. That's how fast this modern chicken grows. I'm so glad human babies aren't like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's quite... It's incredible. Hmm. I mean, in some aspects, it's a little horrifying because, like, the chicken's genetics outpace its physical capacity. Sometimes the chicken can't even uphold its own body weight because it grows so quickly, so large. But this is the most efficient way we've ever learned how to make protein, animal protein. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking to Emmeline Rood, author of Tastes Like Chicken, A History of America's Favorite Bird. I think when a lot of people think about fast food and the rise of the fast food industry in America, we think about beef because, like, the McDonald's hamburger, Burger King. But chicken is so actually important in in thinking about sort of the commodification of food, you know, turning food into these little packages like... KFC, the Chicken McNugget, which is, I mean, I loved Chicken McNuggets when I was a kid. It's like a miracle of science when I think about it. I mean, I just accepted it when I was seven, but now it's like, wait a minute, 
that doesn't look like a chicken. There's no bones. What's going on? There's no skin. Like, what is happening? So when did chicken start to cross over into something that was so highly, uh, like, commercialized and packaged? Well, so the poultry savant behind the chicken nugget um, (laughs) is a man named Robert Baker. He was actually a food scientist at Cornell University. And a lot of his work was happening in the 1960s, 1970s. Basically, chicken has never been an easy commodity to grow. It's kind of hard to sort of wrap your mind around it when today we have Tyson Foods and Purdue, all these huge chicken producers that are worth billions of dollars. But the only reason they, they make money is they make a few cents on the pound, which is, is it's almost negligible. Hmm. And they only do it because of large volume. So farmers have always had a really difficult time making money off of chickens. And Robert Baker was a, a poultry extension agent, so he would go around and try to see what was wrong with farmers, try to help them improve their growing, basically, so they could make more money. And he realized that the, the supply side was limited. There's only so efficiently a chicken producer could raise their chickens and make money. So he, he dedicated himself to the demand. He wanted to make value-added chicken products that would both benefit farmers, give them more money, and also use a lot of the the wasted parts of the chicken, like the backs, the necks, the the less desirable bits. Um, And so at his Cornell laboratory, one of his first inventions was this thing called the Chicken Crispy, which we know today as the chicken nugget, basically pulverized chicken meat with filler breaded deep fried. So that's the parts of the chicken that are, like, not the part you can market as well in the store. Like, chicken breast yeah. is chicken. obviously very desirable. Yeah, the supermarkets call that the Cadillac of the chicken, the chicken breast. Okay. <laughs> um, so so basically he tried to use the, the little forgotten bits because they're okay. just as nutritious. They're just as protein-filled. And um, they'd be presumably thrown away anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be, to be fair, the chicken industry and a lot of the meat industries, they're super efficient, so I'm sure they would be go- going to, like, pet food or fish mm-hmm, food or something, mm-hmm. but... Human consumption gets gets more money to the farmers, so he he made them into a whole bunch of products. So chicken nuggets for him, chicken hot dogs, chicken hamburgers, chicken bologna, something called chicken chunkalona. Um, basically, every <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to have to stop you. What is chicken chunkalona? I'm going to look for like... this in the store or make it at home. Well, it doesn't exist. He invented it anymore. He he had a lot of hits and misses, to be completely honest. Uh, it was just sort of like a chicken a chicken loaf, essentially, okay. chicken chunk lona. Got it. But yeah, he created something like 60-plus value-added chicken products out of his laboratory. So I don't know if it's, if it's irony, if you think it's a noble, but all these value-added chicken products are worth billions of dollars, and Robert Baker gave them all away for free. Hmm. So, um, you know, chicken isn't just eaten in America— it's eaten almost everywhere, like almost yes. in every country. I wonder uh, what you see happening, like, you know, especially in places like China and India, as mm-hmm. hundreds of millions of people start eating more meat and kind of rise into the middle class. And and this is um, a food that is relatively cheap and kind of accessible. Is their appetite for chicken at all reminiscent of Americans' appetite for chicken? Because that's a big appetite. Yeah. Well, yes, definitely. Um, this is probably one of the more eye-opening parts of my research is that the American chicken and the American chicken growing model is expanding everywhere across the world. Chicken is the largest growing facet of meat consumption besides fisheries, but you can debate some of the data. 
And a lot of it is driven by our very specific type of chicken raising, the, the intensive factory farms with these very fast-growing chickens. And chicken consumption around the globe is skyrocketing. As a culinary historian, on one hand, I think this is great because it's more more accessible protein for a lot of people who were unable to eat meat before, just couldn't afford it. But then on the other side, I see sort of a, I don't know if this is apocalyptic, but sort of the hegemony of chicken. You see in the U.S. history, you go back hundreds of years and you see the cookbooks are are filled with tons of different things to meet. You have turtles, you have venison, you have veal, you have lobster, you have crayfish, you have you have all these diverse recipes. Hmm. And as you go through this trajectory of American history, you just get more and more boneless, skinless chicken breast hmm. as the main ingredient of the meal, which um, as somebody who kind of likes the, the looking at strange, unusual recipes, as we go forward, there will be less and less of those be, just because chicken is so cheap and so accessible and so easy to cook, which is good and bad depending yeah. on how you look at it. Do, do you also worry that as... Um chicken raising becomes more popular and more and more millions of chickens are, you know, raised in a certain way, raised really, really quickly. Do you worry about kind of the ethical questions of looking at chicken as just like a piece of technology? We were talking about it being Mm -hmm. a piece of technology or like just a commodity, that that sort of approach to it. So again, this is, it depends on how you view it. I'm more I don't eat very much meat in general so I'm not too big of a fan of sort of a lot of the what people see as cruelties in this industry but at the same time if people are going to eat meat this is the most efficient way to produce it in terms of environmental impact in terms of resource use so I guess it it depends on whether you view it as a justifiable means to an end Mm. In some ways. And a lot of people, I think this is a lot of the reason why chicken has sort of been less of the animal rights focus has been on chicken as compared to beef and pork just because of the nature of the animal itself. People, I guess, feel less of a kindred spirit with birds Hmm. than they do with the larger mammals. And so a lot of ways, the treatment of the chicken, people feel less viscerally upset about it. Even though PETA says the chicken is the most abused animal on the planet, according to their views of the world hmm. um, and you see a rise in companies like beyond meat and stuff right, and even in right. vitro meat meat tissues without an animal attached to it so as a society we have to determine what is acceptable and what those costs were willing to bear for basically cheap meat right was it weird for you writing a whole book hundreds of pages you're you're researching like the history of chicken and and looking at how it became a big deal and who were kind of the stars of of uh-huh. you know the chicken world and and entrepreneurs who who changed the fate of chicken and all that and like you didn't really like chicken that much was that a weird thing well in some ways yes i think i think outsiders think it's a little weirder than i do because it's just fascinating it's such an important part of american life you see all these books about World War II and great presidents, but how many people fought in World War II still alive today? How many people met these great presidents? And how many people eat chicken? You know? <laughs> um, That's one so. way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> Do the funky chicken. Right on, right on, right on. 
Emmeline Rood is the author of Tastes Like Chicken, a history of America's favorite bird. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Kids spend, on average, nine hours a day in front of screens. And in that time, they often, sometimes it's by accident, sometimes by design, they hear or see what's going on in the world. Our question for the young people in our audience, or for people in our audience who just know young people, is how do kids feel about the news they see? What do they make of it? Do they feel well represented? We're working on a story about this, and we want to know what you think. And you also may end up on the radio. There's a couple of ways to contact us, and you can find all of them at facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. Just message us what you're thinking about the news you see, how it affects you, and we will get back to you. Again, all our contact info is at facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. You can listen to Innovation Hub anytime by grabbing our podcast from the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen right off our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put this show together, senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We have production help from Jonathan Gang. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI Public Radio International